The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for October 12th, 2017, the Adult Daycare Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation is in New York. Not with me. Hello, John. Hello, David. I'm sorry I'm not with you, but I'm glad I'm, I'm sorry. with you, at least in this form. Um, are you in corporeal form or have you, are you now a gas? <laughs> a ghost. Well, it's, it's a mostly I'm hot air. Um, that's, <laughs> aren't we all? Aren't we all? Uh, you, least, you least of all, John, I think, <laughs> truthfully. On this week's GabFest, a senior Republican senator turns on the president. Does this portend some kind of larger revolt against him from within his own party? Then the disgusting and possibly criminal behavior of movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Why was it tolerated for so long? Is this a turning point? People love to see turning points. Is this a turning point? Then EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt's plan to scrap the Clean Power Plan and whether that matters, and is the Trump administration finally getting itself together on policy? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And of course, we have two live shows coming up. Hello, Chicago. Hello, greater Chicago metropolitan area, all the way from Indiana to Wisconsin, down to Springfield, Illinois, perhaps. Come see us on October 25th at the Reskin Theater in Chicago. We're going to do a live GabFest and we're going to have a special guest who is Kim Fox, the leading prosecutor in Chicago, will be joining us. And we're going to have a great show on October 25th. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And then we also still have tickets left for our political GabFest conundrum show live in Boston on December the 6th at the Wilbur Theater, which will be our chance to discuss, uh, you know, would you rather be a fish or a tree and other conundrums. You can get tickets to that at slate.com slash live. And of course, we're going to have a special guest for that. Which the answer is always dolphin. Yes, it <laughs> remains a dolphin. Yeah, John's about to go fishing, and I hope he catches some dolphins. No, Wouldn't we that do be, not want him no, catching we dolphins. Don't. That's horrible. That would be amazing. It would be a catch and release. I would just like to see what okay. happens when you wrestle that dolphin into the boat. I don't know if people mm. do catch dolphins. I caught, yeah, I've caught sharks. not but, good. But I, don't, I think dolphins are too smart for this foolishness. I I feel like you, if you go out fishing and you catch a dolphin, you should be like, I scored big time. That's amazing. What a day I've had. You you would be you would feel it disappointing if you caught a dolphin. It would be the day of your life, John. And I guess maybe maybe I don't know. I just would feel well. Anyway, we can talk about this on the conundrum show. What would you do if you caught a dolphin? I mean, you you would talk to it and then you put it back in. Obviously, you wouldn't eat it. I hope. Oof. I hope. Okay, this is getting yucky. It's ghoulish. Can we move on? <laughs> All right. I don't want to anyway, think about tickets, this. T- tickets to our Boston conundrum show where we will not talk about whether you should catch and release dolphins or eat them. Slate.com slash enough. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Just trying to bring a little whimsy into the world, Emily. Okay, fine. Uh, of all the horrors in the world, and that's the, that's the thing that gets you queasy. Anyway, all right. President Trump, who loves a good feud, got into a bunch of them this week. He is threatening to revoke 
NBC's broadcasting license, whatever that means, because it had reported that he asked for a tenfold increase in nuclear weapons. He proposed that he and his secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, take IQ tests to see who the real moron is. And most of all, he had a spat or is continuing to have a spat with Senate Foreign Relations Chair Bob Corker, Tennessee Republican, who is retiring from the Senate next year. Trump had charged that Corker wimped out of running for re-election. In an interview with the New York Times, Corker then unloaded on the president. He called the White House an adult daycare center. He said that the president was risking World War III with his impulsivity and that the whole nature of the White House was to constrain and limit the president, prevent him from uh, indulging in his terrible impulses. Corker's comments also come uh, attached to stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post, I think even Politico, which paint a portrait of the White House, a White House that is designed to manage and corral the president to control information flow to him, to ignore or delay his request, to back channel information to him by using television. Um, John, how different do you think this White House is than the usual presidency, where there's lots of jockeying and political dark arts and attempts to get the ear of the president and sort of manipulate the president by his staff? It's a, it's a good question. All White Houses have these elements of, um, you know, efforts to back channel, um, efforts to do end runs around the system, you know, a president who wants what he wants when he wants it. And every presidency is every president feels the constraints. They want to act improvisationally the way they did during the campaign, the way that was so successful for them during the campaign. And then they get in the office and there are all these constraints that are incredibly irritating. But this is of an order and a magnitude we've never seen before. And the, the constant fact that they have to create this system to accommodate the president in this uh, extraordinary way is is really new. And obviously, you've never had a situation. You've had a president get in fights with the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee chairman. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had a big one with Henry Cabot Lodge over the League of Nations. But they were from different parties. The fact that these are from the same party and that the claim being made by Corker, which is that the president is leading us into World War Three and would would get us there if it weren't for his secretaries of state and defense is an is an extraordinary charge that has no public dissenters, really. I mean, there has been some comment from Republicans, this isn't helpful and so forth. But behind the scenes, they've been saying a version of that, a lot of Republicans for a long time. So Emily, to John's point that that everyone says that it was a very emperor's new clothes. Yes, kind of thing. Uh, you know, we all have had these thoughts. And I assume that Republican senators have had these thoughts. So why is it important that Corker would speak out? Is it important, especially given that the, he doesn't seem to be being followed by a chorus of other uh, sitting Republican legislators? Right. It's not that important if nobody acts, right? And I mean, Corker himself is positioned in this key role in terms of what happens next to the Iran nuclear deal. And then also, you know, he has a vote. So he's one of the votes for whatever tax cut plan um, ends up on the floor. You know, unless the Republicans make Trump and the administration pay in actual political policy terms, I don't think talking about it does much, although it does scare and spook everyone and give us this kind of portrait of the president, which is obviously the opposite of reassuring. I think, 
just on that tax reform point, I think it's a little bit misleading or fantastical to imagine that, oh, Bob Corker, because he and the president are having a personal political conflict, Bob Corker is now going to oppose tax reform. Bob Corker is a conservative Republican who wants a tax cut bill. And yeah, I, think it's, I agree. It's hard to imagine has... that 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 this this spoils the chance he'd ever vote for something just because the president supports it. Right. Although he had been talking about not blowing up the deficit as something that mattered to him. So there are policy reasons why he might have a disagreement on the tax cut plan. I think the point about the Iran nuclear deal is more salient in terms of this particular conflict, right? Because Iran and North Korea are they are intertwined in terms of what our concerns that Trump's irresponsibility is endangering us. The other thing, I guess, I wonder what you think about this, John. I read somewhere this week this great quote, I wish I could remember where, of someone saying, look, nobody in Washington has very much power. Like, that's the reality of of Washington. And I just feel like Trump, he's flailing and he's frustrated and he's just like pissed off that he can't do the things like he thought he was going to be king in some way. He thought that he could revoke NBC's license, whatever the hell he thinks that means. And actually, there are all these constraints and strictures that bind him. And he's terrible at the policy part of it, which makes him bad at the insider politics part, even though he think he's still really good at the like stoking the base part. See the recent NFL controversy. But it's just like watching someone who's just in the wrong job. Well, I think that line about nobody in Washington having power is is true. I think the president still has tremendous powers. We'll talk about later in the show, you know, to undo the work yes. of his predecessor. And we're seeing him do it this week on both the clean power plan and also with the executive order. He's uh preparing to sign on Thursday, allowing association health plans, which essentially undermines the Affordable Care Act. So to the extent that that he can use the same avenues his predecessor did to get around the fact that his predecessor, like his predecessor before him, felt those constraints, one of which is the inaction and abdication by Congress. They've done a bunch of executive things or through regulations that then a subsequent president can undo. So the president does have some things he can do. He's not totally powerless, but he, the president, set all kinds of expectations about what he'd be able to do and ran as a person. I alone can fix it. Uh, he also ran on the idea that he was a uniquely powerful negotiator who would be able to kind of get Congress to do what he wanted. And he hasn't been able to, even members of his own party. And then there's also his relationship to the news cycle. He likes to have the feedback loop, whether it's on the NFL controversy or the, the temporary deal he struck with Democratic leaders of the, the, the kind of positive feedback loop. Um, and then and then the particularly the, the, that portion of it that comes from his own base. Um, so I think what he has not done is what all successful presidents have to do and business leaders as well, which is when you find the environment is different than you expected, you have to adapt. And he really hasn't adapted to the challenges he faces, which are not unexpected challenges. They come with the office. They are obvious and predictable and historical. I was at this democracy conference last week that was put on in part by Brightline Watch, this group that's like trying to track. We talked about this on the show and you made fun of them, David, or at least the notion that political scientists would have anything to offer in measuring the health of our democracy. But in any case, it was really interesting. And I have no memory of it, but sounds extremely it Sounds possible. It was very strange, actually, objection. But in any case, what I was gleaning from all these political scientists is that 
right at this moment, the fear that Trump was going to be an autocrat has ebbed. And instead, everyone's just worried about incompetency and stumbling into a war with North Korea, you know, which is I feel like the idea of stumbling on a war is like a phrase I've suddenly reading all over the place in the last couple of weeks. And it has its own scariness to it, but it's not it doesn't feel cunning or strategic. It just feels bumbling to use another yes. word that rhymes with stumble. Yes, it does. I, I mean, this gets to actually a very smart David Frum piece. David Frum was sitting next to me at this panel at this conference. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) He was there too. Uh, David Frum had a very smart piece about the kind of lesser of two evils nature of this uh, undermining of the president by his own staff. So so one of the, uh, in addition to Corker sort of saying this about the president, there were these other various stories in Vanity Fair and the Post and the Times saying that his own staff is, is just doing things to try to manage him and control him. Uh, and to make sure that Mattis and Tillerson in particular have, and Kelly, John Kelly, the chief of staff, have uh, are, ma- are making more of the decisions or at least carrying out more of the decisions. And what you see is that on several policy matters and the ban on transgender troops serving on Korea policy, you see the secretary of state in the case of Korea and the secretary of defense in the case of the troop ban undermining and delaying filibustering the president and you know you think well that's okay you know because these are terrible policies and we want the president's terrible policies constrained but as from points out this is dangerous in the future that you do not want uh, a bureaucracy that is failing to carry out the the orders of the president that's failing to do the work of the president and you don't really? want generals blocking the president doing his job that's a that's not it's it's for the moment it seems like a better better of two options but it does seem dangerous and it's especially dangerous because we have a irresponsible legislature which refuses to act by passing laws or by acting as a legitimate oversight or check on the executive so in that context what did you think of this proposal floating around of changing how our nuclear weapons get detonated. And instead of having this be the sole authority of the president, where he can just orally give an order, yep, send those nukes over to North Korea right now, making sure that the Secretary of Defense or State or even someone in the military has to also co-approve. The Congress is talking about a bill where Congress would have to declare war before a nuclear weapon could be deployed. So do you see that as like a functional response because then the legislature would be legislating and we would change the policy that way? Or like you're usually someone who wants to constrain the powers of the executive. So maybe it's about how we do that, not like that we shouldn't do it at all. I like bureaucrats. And I think one of the great distinctions between the United States and the UK, the UK has this highly professionalized bureaucracy. And so when a government comes in, in the UK, it has to work with this highly professional bureaucracy, which has a huge amount of of entrenched power and actually its ability to to shape policies is more limited. And I, I, I like that system. I just think it's dangerous within an American system where we presume that the president's orders are carried out. It is disturbing that the president's orders aren't necessarily being carried out. And it does seem like a, a precedent that we should at least worry about. And I worry about it in particular because I don't trust the Congress that currently exists to be that legitimate countervailing force, which is what it ought to be. We'll get to this probably in one of the other topics, but the bureaucracy, to the extent that it is executing the laws as passed by Congress, that's when you want it to function 
effectively, you know, when the whole system is working. Um, but then if you have the bureaucracy just reacting to the whims of of a single president, that's when you might want the bureaucracy. Right. right. Which in this case is not Good necessarily, it doesn't have to go all the way up to generals refusing orders. It can be people with expertise and who have a focus on the important, not just the urgent, who have a sense of distance of time, who have, as all people who understand complex problems, uh, they understand the what you've done in the short term, how that affects the long term. So there are a lot of reasons that the bureaucracy has an understanding of things that political appointees who've rushed in off a campaign don't have. The reason the bureaucracy going and implementing what Congress has done is presumably Congress has thought through these long-term things at least a little better than than an administration. So I wonder if that's the distinction that, that from yeah. having not read his piece um, would sign up to. That's, that's a good point. So Corker is not running for re-election. He just, I think it's Marsha Blackburn, isn't she? Yeah. Likely to, to be the Republican nominee and probably end up being the senator there. Well, I mean, Bannon has gotten behind her, right? I don't think anyone she is, else. Yeah, she's running. I, I mean, it depends who the and, Democrat uh, and, who goes up against her. Tennessee and, is a is a red state, but it's not. It wouldn't be impervious. It's not Alabama, right? But so, and then we have in the spectacle in Wyoming, uh, a relatively establishment conservative John Barrasso senator who's going to be. It looks like primary, perhaps both by Foster Freeze, a billionaire political financier and by Eric Prince, the head of the mercenary Blackwater group and, and uh, really one of the most sinister figures in American life. Um, the thing that I find so alarming about this, John, is that these are, these people who are running are not really in any sense conservatives in any policy way. These are people who are running around kind of the inchoate angriness there's a style they're not policies and proposals there's a style that is being put forward that's what trumpism has translated into it hasn't translated into policy measures it's translated into this style of american political life and i find that absolutely terrifying because it means that whatever political abilities that still rest within congress are diminishing further when you bring in people like roy moore or what i imagine eric prince would be or Marsha Blackburn. It's kind of terrifying. I can't disagree um, with the... I mean, I guess I would take it from this point of view, which is that... So these people... Get, let's say all these people get elected. That's great. But then the, the capacity um, to get things done in a system where you do... It does require... I mean, all the rules of the system have not been repealed. What you can imagine happening is if the president has been frustrated by the normal checks and balances that were designed to do pretty much exactly what they're doing, then voting more people in is going to lead to more frustration. Now, you can imagine, well, we'll vote so many people in that we'll have massive majorities. Maybe. Or you'll get rid of the um, filibuster, right? That's the other thing is to depose Mitch McConnell and end the filibuster. Yeah, that's possible. That would require quite an extraordinary revolution to do that. And I think that what what we find is that things don't turn out the way they were promised in the revolution. Um, and so Bannon's, you know, take over the world uh, strategy has some 
little echoes of of Gingrich that we should talk about in some other show, but that um, and what what Newt Gingrich was able to do in in 1994. Now the there are lots of major differences too, but it does interest me. I mean, David, isn't there another way of thinking about the Roy Moores of the world, which is that they're exposing the Republicans at their most extreme? And you could argue that there are a lot of other Republicans who have kind of allowed for this takeover of their party, haven't objected, and that if the that if they're going to be exposed as, you know, associated with condoning, empowering people who just want to blow up the whole system in a kind of nihilistic way, then then the voters will reject that, that that if that proves to be outside the mainstream, then that will be to the party's detriment at the polls. And that's how the political system controls for it. Well, except I would say that the converse is happening, which is that you look at Ed Gillespie running for governor here in Virginia. Gillespie, who is a total establishment Republican, somebody who couldn't be more establishment Republican, and he's running a very racist, alarmist, untruthful, a rage-stoking campaign against, you know, kind of moderate Democrat. And it's a weird, weird campaign. He is a, this, this, this establishment Republican is appealing to the worst instincts and, you know, is running a str- and ahead. And could win. And could yeah. win. I mean, he's running way ahead of anyone expected and could win with this. And so my worry is much more that it's the opposite direction, that people are deciding or concluding that, that this populist rage-stoking and anger-stoking being a being a, a rage merchant is the way to political success in the Republican Party, but that there's no second sentence to it. There's no policy implications. There's no there's no will or ability to then carry out anything. And well, or there so is. I mean, there's a tax repeal plan, a tax cut plan that's like going to be like the one in Kansas, which bankrupted the state, right? Where you create this pass through loophole. Anyway, whatever. It's not as if there's nobody with any policy ideas. Is that the policy ideas have gotten more extreme as well, right? Well, also that po- that policy idea doesn't actually do anything to help. Well, yes, poor that. people, or middle enough. class people. We have a slate plus for you today, of course. Slate plus members, uh, Diane Feinstein is running for Senate again in California. How old is too old to be a public servant, to be a member of Congress, to be a senator? We'll talk about that. If you are not yet a slate plus member, go to slate.com/slash/gabfest plus. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
a pair of astonishing stories, one in the New York Times, one in the New Yorker, alleged that Harvey Weinstein, the legendary bullying movie mogul, liberal lion, is a sexual harasser, a sexual assaulter, perhaps even a rapist. More than a dozen women by now have come forward with extremely credible and specific allegations that Weinstein pressured them into sex in exchange for help with their careers, lured them to hotel rooms, then lechged all over them in various grotesque ways, and then in many cases paid them off and bought their silence when they occasionally had the temerity and bravery to challenge him. Weinstein has now been fired by his company. He has been by turns belligerent, apologetic, misdirecting, now seems to have completely lost control of the narrative. Um, His wife has announced she's leaving him. Conservatives are particularly enjoying the spectacle of the liberal Hollywood hero, liberal liberal Hollywood um, giant humiliated and uh, reveling in that hypocrisy. Emily, this this one, uh, it's disgusting. It's astonishingly disgusting what he's alleged to have done. He, the tape of him that the New Yorker obtained oh, is God. grotesque. And as with Roger Ailes, who this case seems to me like such a mirror, or not a mirror, such a uh, an echo, such a kind of uh, duplication, doppelganger of the Ailes case, lots of people seem to have known what he was doing and to have enabled him to do it, to cover, helped him cover it up over many, many years. Yes, indeed. It does have all of that going on in it. And um, it also seems so 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Like this is one's idea of starlets in Hollywood on the casting couch having to, you know, have sex with gross old men. It was an era I like thought was over. Now I feel really naive to have assumed that this dynamic wouldn't go on anymore somehow because what Weinstein was doing, he was doing, if not up until like five minutes ago through 2015. And all these actresses, um, there were staffers. I mean, there's the range of people who he was groping and molesting and propositioning is kind of astonishing. But it seemed like essentially actresses were quietly warning each other. But he was so powerful as a filmmaker and at, at Miramax that they couldn't figure out how to band together against him. And, I, you know, the, the women who... Um, came forward in the first story in the Times by Jody Cantor, just deserves so much credit, right? Like, there's Ashley Judd's name on the top of that story. And now that everyone else has come forward, she's part of this group, and there's solidarity and power in that group. But it must not have been obvious that that was going to be the case. And uh, just to plug for Jody did a great interview with um, Slate, actually, about the sourcing for the story and how it came together, which I really recommend. I mean, do you, I mean, is this the same as the Ailes story, John? Is, it any, is there anything significantly different than what it was with Ailes? I don't know, I, in either case, the extent to which the culture, if there are, you know, circles of tolerance, obviously the Fox building was a circle of tolerance. Did it go beyond that? Did everybody who, you know, was a guest or was a part of the conservative Fox world know this about either the Ailes and what he tolerated both within his organization and what he did himself. Did they know that or not? And then in this case with Weinstein, it clearly seems that um, a lot of people, particularly um, in the business, but then, you know, maybe even some in the political world who benefited from his contributions knew that he was at least, you know, and I don't know what level they knew. And we can, we should talk about like what level is 
um, the level at which one should speak up if you're not directly associated with it. Um, and I just don't know what, where those parallels uh, match up. Seems to be increasingly clear that the company that he worked for was aware that there was stuff going on. They were aware that he had paid settlements and that there were agreements that had been signed. And and so there was some line in a story today I read that where, where the company was saying, oh, they thought it was just uh, for consensual, consensual affairs. Consensual affairs, right. Yeah, yeah that's uh, a little bit like see no evil, hear no evil, right? Um, but Emily, there is this real legal issue here, which is that the problems of NDAs and, and confidentiality agreements boxes people in that one of the things that Weinstein used apparently used so effectively was forcing his employees to sign very restrictive NDAs. So none of them are going to speak out about the things that they've observed. And then when there are settlements of which there appear to be a bunch to have put in very strict confidentiality rules so that the people who made the settlements kind of are unable to to legally uh, go public and talk about what what uh, happened to them. And, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I don't, what's, I mean, what's, what do you think, is it okay to buy people off and buy their silence? I think in a way, I think it's more okay to buy people off. Um, you make a legal, se- you, you sexually uh, uh, harass somebody, you make a settlement with them, you pay them for their silence. I kind of think that's okay. I think it's okay. I don't think it's great, but I think that's okay. I don't think it's okay to have NDAs, which require people at work to essentially say, I now have to be complicit in all kinds of grotesque behavior and I can never speak out about it. And if I want to advance in my career, I can never reveal the fact that my boss is behaving in these criminal ways all the time. That seems to me less uh, good than the confidentiality that comes with a financial settlement. So I guess there are a couple questions. One is what would be the justification for banning being able to contract for someone's silence, right? Is that something that we see now as enough of a social negative that we would somehow have a legal regime that would say that you can't have a contract where you buy someone else's silence? A little hard for me to imagine that. But in thinking of the distinction you just drew between victims of harassment and employees, so the victims of harassment have already had the bad experience. They know what it was they went through, and they're making a decision based on how much money they can get as a way of being made whole, right? Like, let's, you know, give it its due that they're not going to talk about this. And they figure that, well, they won't be blowing the whistle on the sky, but at least, like, they have damages. The employees are in a different position because they're asked to sign the NDAs before they witness whatever, right. before they right. know about whatever, right? So they're agreeing to be in a work environment in which, you know, I'm sure people dress it up as like, oh, your discretion is really important and this is important for my privacy. But, you know, I mean, look, Donald Trump has had used to have people sign NDAs all over around him. I think one of the things about government that must drive him the craziest is that he doesn't have that kind of control and secrecy anymore. And it is hard to really see what the social benefit of those NDAs are. Um, But on the other hand, if you were a powerful corporate executive, of course you would want that kind of silence because it insulates you in a million different ways. And I think companies are more and more making that a standard part of an agreement. And then, you know, it's also worth talking about arbitration agreements. Uh, Gretchen Carlson raised this um, in writing about this issue that, you know, if if it's a standard part of your contract as an employee, that if you have a dispute, you're going to take it to private arbitration. Nobody's going to know about it. You're not going to be able to sue in public court as part of a group of people in a class action. The company has just taken an enormous amount of power away from you. But I think most of us are... 
will we sign those kinds of contracts without realizing what we're giving up and that is really a corrosive element of the kind of american corporate scene right now john one of weinstein's initial excuses which now seems to have uh, is no longer operative as we used to say in the nixon era uh was the oh i'm a dinosaur i came i came of age in the 60s and 70s is that excuse now fortunately dead like can we now just put that excuse to bed forever, at least when it comes to sexual misbehavior? I, good God, I should hope so. I mean, it was, it was dead. It was, I mean, it was, this is what made that uh, um, so laughable is, so let's imagine for a moment that you entertain that idea. Okay. So you came of age during that, but the last 20 years have been about an increasing conversation and the causes that you support and the candidates you support, particularly Hillary Clinton, have been spending a great deal of time talking about changing in a number of ways, but in this specific way, the rules of the road so that women uh, aren't preyed upon by this very kind of person. So perhaps your upbringing has put you at a disadvantage on this set of issues, but that only gets you to 1975. (laughs) You've got to, like, the rest of, of time that has passed... You can't say, well, my upbringing meant that I was totally oblivious to the developments in the specific political space that I've donated money to for the last 20 years. That just seems to me to be uh, without reason. Emily, are liberals being hypocrites about Weinstein? Do, do it's, The conservatives have sought to make this basically a story about Hillary Clinton. Because everything's about hypocrisy? Hillary Clinton. Wait, is she running for president? Actually, is she in the White House? Because it seems like we should really be covering her every move. Um, I think that there were some Democrats who took longer than was ideal in denouncing Weinstein. I would say, like, waiting a day to make sure the allegations are going to hold up, okay. But, like, waiting for five or six days, no, not so great. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think some of them have been hypocrites. I also think that when you know someone personally and you've shaken their hand and they've written you a big check, it is not so easy to like, I imagine that it just feels kind of gross to suddenly be turning on them, even when it's the right thing to do. I'm not excusing it. I'm just trying to understand it. Do you think that, um, they've been hypocrites? No, I mean, I don't, no one's defending him. True. It was just a matter of how long it it took. How long people took. I think it's good. Let's go to the John nudge to this question, which is so all of us are sinners, right? We all constantly engaging in, in behavior, which is unworthy of of uh, of love or respect. And we all work with other people who are sinners, right? When are you obliged to stand up against someone's misbehavior? Because presumably if you discover like that, you know, you, you discover your boss litters a lot. Like that's not a thing which you have to report to the board and do a press release if, if he's littering. I mean, isn't it so when you when see someone getting hurt, when you see actual harm or when you know of harm in some way that, like, makes you want to act and you're you have a sense of urgent worry about the person's about the repercussions for another human being? No, you're unimpressed. I don't know. No, I mean, I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm I'm asking. I think it's what if it's not in the workplace? What if that's like what if they what if they are, you know, the the damage they're doing to people isn't in the workplace strangling puppies and eating dolphins like on their own time i mean i think it's a little different if it's outside the workplace but you know i mean 
how often, if you really know someone is doing a terrible thing, do you like how often are we presented with clear evidence of someone doing real harm and we, um, we just walk away? I don't know. That hasn't happened to me that much. Maybe I'm living a charmed life. Well, you're not presented with clear evidence of it. You're presented with hints and indications and suggestions of it. And what's your obligation then? You know, we're judging it now in the light of very specific stories that have now come out. Did people know who were in a position to say something, the specificity of those stories in the clarity that we know them now? Um, or was it and the in most the gray volume, area? We- right? Like, it's the pattern that matters, too. Now we see the pattern. It seems so obvious. But if you just knew about one incident and you only had, like, hints of others, maybe you would like understandably be reluctant you know you might have known oh there wasn't you know he he made a pass and was rebuffed and that's that can be an incomplete description of something that's much more that that in some of these descriptions sounds basically like rape so i guess it's that seems to me one of the big problems is how much do you really know of these incidents and and there needs to be an avenue where obviously you don't want to do false reporting either, but an avenue that means you don't have to have metaphysical certainty about everything that happened before you say something. And I don't know how you set up such an avenue, although I assume that they exist. It's just my ignorance that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, I find this is, this is a a very hard question. I think it's, it's always obviously so easy in retrospect with a case like this or a case like Ailes where it's like, Oh, of course. And everyone should have spoken up earlier. And, but I think at the time it must be, so hard. I have two right. questions yeah. for the uh, assembled group. One is, does a Democrat who says, you know, this behavior is wrong for Harvey Weinstein and the president undermine the central point by making it political? Are you actually undermining the clarity of the truth, which is it is wrong, period? I mean, I think right now in Hollywood, they need to be dealing with their own ogre. And the problem with the political conversation is it's coming from both sides, right? So there's like the sort of endless tip for tat where Republicans accuse Democrats of using this politically and then it goes back and forth. I mean, I do think in the taking a step back analysis of like, are we at a turning point? The fact that Donald Trump suffered no consequences from the voters for what he was caught you know, saying on the Access Hollywood tapes and then the stream of women who came forward is evidence that we have not turned a corner and that actually Harvey Weinstein got fired and is being like drummed out of um, Hollywood, one suspects or at least like expects. But, you know, Bill Cosby's hung jury. There just is are still a variety of outcomes in these situations, even when a group of women comes forward and backs up each other's stories. And that is tough to watch. Right. I mean, so Ailes was ruined and died, sort of. Yes. Weinstein, I think, will be, you know, be a rich person, but he will be persona non grata in Hollywood. Cosby had a hung jury, but his Cosby is a disgrace. I mean, yes, Cosby persona non can't, grata. His persona non grata. Bill O'Reilly is a weird case. He's going to have a comeback. Yep. Is my sense. I bet he uh, Trump, his Trump is, you know, passed through it all. You sort of say, oh, well, Ailes was ruined and Weinstein will be ruined and Cosby was ruined and therefore the system is working. But you're right. There are these examples of people who aren't. And we should add Bill Clinton to that list. Right. It's fair. Right. You know, right. Bill Clinton not ruined. Yes. Yeah. 
same thing. And then that 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 sort of goes exactly to my second question, which is, is this a case where there is a societal good that the more public a person is drummed out of polite society and all society has an actual public good because it will deter others who see it as a, you know, and, and say, oh, you know, my I will be ruined in all possible ways. Yeah, I think that's yes. right. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt is turning into the Babe Ruth of the Bad News Bears Trump administration. Pruitt came to Washington from Oklahoma with a plan, and lo and behold, he is carrying it through. The former Oklahoma Attorney General has spent much of his career suing to undermine and weaken and demolish the EPA. He's now using his power as its boss to undermine and weaken and demolish the EPA. This week comes perhaps the biggest news. He is scrapping the clean power plan, which is an Obama-era policy to discourage construction and operation of coal plants in order to help the U.S. meet its CO2 reduction goals. Pruitt declared um, that the war on coal is over. This has actually been a... There's been these other things happening, but this is weirdly a big policy week for the Trump administration because there yes. also is now news that they're, they may indeed scrap NAFTA. Well, there they essentially is, got rid of the contraception mandate that was providing women free uh, birth control coverage. Got rid Obama of the contraception care. mandate. And as John hinted at earlier, the President Trump on Thursday will sign an executive order allowing the expansion of association health plans, which many health policy experts think will be incredibly tough on the insurance markets and will will really undermine Obamacare in other ways. So, John, do these various actions, in particular Pruitt on on the clean power plan, does this reflect oh the Trump administration now is is getting into its policy groove or or is that overreading? Well, no, I think I think there are two ways to look at it, which is one, this is a fulfillment of the promise of the Trump administration. And so when we're grading the president, he's he's been really highly ineffective when it comes to legislation and 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 particularly ineffective given that he was that he sold himself as a negotiator who could manage the legislative process and where he's been effective is in using um, the regulations or removing the regulations from the departments where he could and then taking executive action as he appears to take uh, that he's going to on on Thursday and you really if you look at it starting with birth control last Friday it really is quite a a list we've got here this week between decertified, likely to decertify Iran on the Iran deal, NAFTA, contraception, healthcare, and now clean power plant. That's a lot of undoing of Obama era. I mean, this was the signature environmental element of the of the Obama era. So, in that sense, he's been quite effective. In the normal rule of things, you'd have Congress making these laws. Um, right. So, when Obama used the EPA to do what Congress wouldn't tell it to do. He was called out, and in fact, that's one of the reasons that the National Review supports what Pruitt did. But then when the president now is about to go do a very similar version of the same thing, having been sent no clear signal by Congress on the Affordable Care Act, he's now going to just do it by executive action. He's doing precisely what they criticize Obama for, and it is in both cases an indication of what we were talking about earlier, which is the fact that Congress is no longer a participant in government in the way it was designed to be. All right. I just want to say that the story of the clean power plan is a little more complicated than the National Review rendering of it, because while it is true, OK, like let's let's uh, 
fill in some historical details here. It is true that Congress has not passed major environmental legislation since the 70s. It is also true that there is broad language in the Clean Air Act from the 1970s, which the EPA itself interpreted as saying that regulating carbon emissions were important because of the endangerment finding it made under the existing law. So there's a right. This is the regulatory framework that we have where the bureaucrats look at the statute. They (sighs) contend with this new challenge. They decide what they think it means. And then we had courts that upheld this EPA reading and interpretation of the statute, which is also supposed to be how it works. Now, it is, of course, true that Congress could have come along and legislated either in favor or against regulating carbon emissions in this way. But these are sort of alternate routes to regulation. And um, the endangerment finding still stands. It is really unclear how Scott Pruitt's order is going to stand up in court. Every Everything that we just talked about, that list we were giving, all of those things are going to be challenged in court. And while it is, you, you can both rue the rise of executive order signing as a means to power and also think that in each one of these instances, we need to look at the specifics of exactly what kind of executive order was signed and what kind of evidence and bureaucratic findings are there to support it. I mean, Scott Pruitt, to get rid of that endangerment finding, is going to somehow have to get the EPA to say that carbon emissions are not doing all the things that scientists have been very clear they are, in fact, doing it. Right. That's very well put, Emily. That's a very that's a very strong uh, case against the the sort of conservative view that this is executive overreach or exe- a regulatory overreach, you know, buttressed by judges intervening where they shouldn't intervene. On the other hand, is it the- is it is screwed up that we have a Congress that basically won't legislatively act to try to control carbon emissions or acknowledge this, and a presidency and an executive branch that won't act, and so that we're reduced to like counting on a bare majority of the Supreme Court to stretch the interpretation of a 1970s law, which was definitely not about carbon dioxide, in order just to get regulation. I mean, that's troubling. That is a troubling fact. So you think Congress should have had to legislate about carbon emissions? I think you you have just made a very strong case that this is the EPA's job. They're doing their job. The courts have upheld their right to do this. It's just really sad as a nation that we don't have a legislative or executive branch that are willing to actually tackle this thing head on, that we have to do it in this totally side door way. Well, I, I mean, guess, I'm right. is, is all for that. Comparison but. between the one route, which is the legislative route, and then the other route, which is that each head of the EPA decides what its own findings mean and what it decides to interpret the law to mean. And then we have to wait for the courts to call balls and strikes on whether they did what they did within the, you know, limits of their power. And don't we then get into that problem, Emily, with this, the idea of Congress not wanting, or is this just the Supreme Court, not wanting to meddle with the way in which departments determine and and make judgments about their own regulations? Um, I mean, it's that's more a court issue. Congress can come in and rewrite the law whenever it wants, no, right? No, no, like no, that's Congress... what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the courts. Okay. When the court, isn't the court reluctant to say, hey, you interpreted this regul you interpreted your role in interpreting this regulation the wrong way. Don't they usually stay away from that? 
Well, courts defer, right? This is a famous right. Chevron deference. Thank you for letting me say those words yet one more time. But it is also true that administrations are allowed to change their mind. They're just supposed to be doing it based on some evidence that supports the conclusions that they're getting to, right? I mean, also, I- but, well, I was just going to say if we're if we're just sort of judging whether these two routes are better. One route is the congressional route. The other route is the each administration changes and then the, and then the courts determine whether they went too far in changing it. I guess my point is because of Chevron deference, doesn't that make it an imperfect? This other route, which is each administration changing it, isn't it somewhat imperfect if, the, if there is this principle followed sometimes, followed not other times in the courts where they don't rule on these kinds of questions because of Chevron deference? Well, Chevron deference is like the general rule that courts do follow. So I think that the system is pretty predictable and stable. I mean, those are important aspects of a legal system, right? Will you be able to game out? Can companies count on as they make plans going forward what these rules are going to be? I think that part of it is working okay. I mean, I think the larger, bigger question you're raising is about whether we'd be better off if there was less deference because then things would be, you know, messier and then maybe the legislature would step in more. Like, have we created, have the first and the third branches essentially colluded to allow the legislature to not do its job? Like, that's an interesting set of questions. I also think, though, it is just crazy that in this month of hurricanes and raging fires in California, these extreme weather events that are tied in some way to climate change, that We are having this Jurassic policy from our National Environmental Agency, which is talking about coal. Like (laughs) it's, I mean, right in a moment in which, in fact, the United States is moving closer toward the climate change goals of the world and the Obama administration faster than we expected because the markets are adjusting and because, you know, alternative energy sources are actually coming online faster than we thought. Like there's just this craziness to this, especially when you think of how few coal mining jobs are actually at stake and the way those jobs and that way of life has acquired this like totemic cultural force for the right. It it just there's something very weird. I feel like we're going to look back on this moment and that speech Scott Pruitt made in this against the backdrop of California literally burning up. And we're going to think, my God, that was nuts. Yeah, no, it's and I mean, the, so the war on coal, so so true. Pruitt declared that the war on coal was over. But of course, the war on coal is not actually being really waged by the government. The war on coal is being waged by the market. Right. And the the war on coal will continue. In that sense, like maybe this is a symbolic gesture, which actually doesn't really mean anything. I was talking to a friend who works for an energy utility that runs a coal plant. And I think the fact of the clean power plant uh, you know, certainly was going to guarantee that they were going to shut that plant down, but they weren't going to shut the plant down anyway because it just natural gas was so much more effective and renewables were so much, you know, at this point were becoming uh, such a better deal. Uh, the reporting on this though, suggests, right, but it suggests like the speed of them going may change in different right. parts of the country right. that have been more resistant are going to be, right? Yeah. Like, it mean, and it yeah. also means that this is more and more politically divisive in this way that is also just really damaging for the country. Well, that's the purpose. Its purpose yes. is to be politically divisive. I agree. Yeah, I think it feels much more like a cultural signifier than, yep. than anything else. 
the reason coal was being dis- coal-fired plants were being disadvantaged is because there was a belief that what they were producing was hurting the environment and that was hurting Americans. Like it's like saying, you know, if you have regulations against tobacco that it's you're picking winners and losers. Well, you're picking a loser in this case because you have a belief about what it's doing to the environment. And and to not even address that belief, but just just to say the idea of picking winners and losers is itself a bad thing to use that buzzword as a mark against it without engaging with the underlying you may be able to make a case for why coal is not polluting and therefore is not hurting health but you have to engage in that debate you can't just say the idea of picking and winners and losers is bad because in this case the picking of the loser was based on you know a moral idea not just on just some whimsy yeah and also i mean two points in that one is that coal isn't simply an environmental hazard. It was also a public, a massive public health hazard. So that's a way in which people are literally being harmed directly. So that's one. And two, it's just the idea that wind and and solar are suddenly being you know massively favored and how unfair that is ignores the fact that oil and gas production have had these enormous, and coal production, enormous, enormous public subsidies for century. You know, it's ludicrous to claim that now now they're being disfavored. One last point. I, I suspect on just on the Pruitt question, I suspect that the biggest impact of Scott Pruitt in the long run is not any one of these individual policies, it's that the, it's going to be the loss of human capital, which is that we are taking the, the best and most enthusiastic government workers, the ones who have the deepest knowledge and the most support for the mission of their administ- of their agencies, and they're leaving. They're just not staying. They don't want to be there anymore. It's terrible. State job. Department, true, too, right? State Department, Interior, uh, uh, Department of Education, I suspect, um, but certainly at EPA. In the long run, I I think that means the agency will run worse. It will be less good at its job, and that will also make it a you know people will like it less, and it will be seen as less effective. And in the long run, that's going to be very damaging. And more more damaging, I suspect, for their mission than any one clean power plant plan policy repeal will be. Let's go to cocktail chatter, John Dickerson. When you are when you're uh, out fishing for dolphins, and uh, you're having a beer as you're fishing for dolphins, what are you going to be chattering about to your fishing companions? It's a slightly incomplete chatter because I don't want to spoil it, but is a a film on a short film on that um in the new york times website called i have a message for you by matan i guess it's rushlitz which is a story about a woman during the holocaust and her father and i don't want to tell you any more than that except that um it's really worth going and watching this video it's just it's an amazing story it's beautifully told it's beautifully edited it's just really really well done um and normally i don't do uh i mean this is a bit of a teaser but i think it's worth it not to um tell you anymore anyway i just really think people should go watch is it, it already posted it is it's online and the if if you all you have to do is type in i have a message for you into into the google machine and i'm sure it'll take you to this to this piece it's on the opinion pages um it's um the rubric is op docs um on the times website Emily, what is your chatter? I really enjoyed a letter that the American Sociological Association sent to Chief Justice John (laughs) Roberts this week. It was in response to the 
remarks he made in the um, gerrymandering case that we talked about, where he talked about social science data as sociological gobbledygook. Um, <laughs> the ASA said, in this letter, we provide context for understanding the empirical nature of social scientific data and the ways it has served the national interests. So then they give a list of, you know, inc- important contributions that sociology has made. The top of the list, clear evidence that separate is not equal. Next entry, early algorithms for detecting credit card fraud. It's a really good list. And then at the end, they say that their executive director would be happy to talk to him or arrange a meeting so that he could understand better the way in which sociological data has informed thoughtful decision making by judges. And it ends with a nice thank you for your consideration. So I hope Chief Justice John Roberts goes and has this meeting with the ASA so that he can stop belittling evidence that he just doesn't like in a tradition that conservative justices are more and more continuing and they should really cut it out and be embarrassed by. Yeah, but, you know, look, I love sociology. <laughs> You're love about sociology. to tell <laughs> yourself. Yes, go ahead. You know, the, sociology is not, I don't know, it's not mathematics. It's not, uh, like, there aren't proofs. It's not there's not fully dispositive evidence in sociology the way there is with a, a you know a chemistry experiment usually. Well, I mean, look, there is a difference between hard science and sociology as well as other, quote, soft sciences. But that does not mean that we dismiss its conclusions out I mean, of hand. Of, they no, know stuff. They figure one, stuff out. Sure, sure. But one of the interesting – the person who won the Nobel Prize in economics this week, uh, Richard Thaler. Thaler. You know, one of the reasons he won is for pointing out the irrationality that undergirds so much human economic behavior. But this is a, economics as a social science had totally ignored that that irrationality for most of its existence as a profession. And it was based on kind of the idea that there was a rational model for it. And so so I do think that I, I what the conservative justices are doing in general, I abhor, I totally abhor it. I, I'm on your side with this, Emily. But Sociology does not have quite as many legs to stand on as maybe chemistry does or physics or or biology. I don't know why you are dissing sociology, but I will say that the example you just gave of Thaler's that's advancing a, the science of economics, right? And other social sciences. That's how science works. They do stuff wrong for a while. Someone comes along with a better idea and they fix it. And that's also how hard science experiments right. also true. work. Like, that's come true. on. Good point. That's yeah. fair point. Okay. Uh, now I'm about to cite a sociological experiment in my chatter. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Er Ur-Gabfest moment. (laughs) Floss looks at his notes, realizes. Like, like, uh, uh, supreme assertions, changing of mind, and then um, ironic underlining. This is so bad. This is so bad. Are you ready? Here we go. (laughs) And then categorization of meta event. Oh my god! I hope just, you didn't what? pick a bullshit one too. Maybe that's oh, what you're doing. So bad. Like, no, it. no, I picked no. one which I'm endorsing. Oh, nice work. <laughs> so well, let's the hear York, it. In the New York Times this week, Justin Justin Wolfers, uh, who's a I think a behavioral economist largely, but Justin wrote about a study of racial discrimination among local government officials, and this is an ingenious study where. Uh, researchers emailed, sent 20,000 emails to local public officials, librarians, government workers, librarians, uh, 
police offices, uh, you know, sheriffs, um, school districts, and randomly emailed. And the, the person, the name of the person emailing was either a white name as defined, sort of generally perceived as a white name according to census uh, prevalence of whiteness in names, and and then also an African American sounding name again by based on sort of census data about what what names are largely uh, associated with African Americans. And it was an innocuous question about, I think, mostly about what time a particular office might be open. And then they measured the response rate. How often do you get a response if you have a emailed with a white name or emailed with an African-American sounding name? And you are significantly more likely to get a response from a government official if you are have a white name, 13% more likely. Also, you're much more likely to get a polite response. And then they also, just to check to see whether this could be just to see this as might be a class association. They, they had a signature line where they put a, each person signed their name and then as a, said they were a real estate agent. You know, it's like a put, put that they were a real estate agent in their signature line. The same bias persisted when they did that as well. And it was worst at sheriff's offices, but also libraries and school districts also had this bias as well, this gap. The gap was highest in places where the proportion of white government employees was higher evidence of what we already know but it was uh it was a very canny experiment to show that in fact even in the most innocuous situations even in the not even face-to-face situations there's a a race bias that affects how people are uh, treating their fellow citizens thank you sociologists for doing that work so that we know (laughs) that interesting piece of information that evidence enriches our lives helps us to understand our world great gobbledygook (laughs) <laughs> Great gobbledygook this time, sociologist. I, 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 uh, I, I'm glad to have provided um, pleasure and derision for my fellow gabfesters. You already listen to podcasts, obviously, but if you're a parent, you probably notice that there aren't a lot of great podcasts for your kids. There's tons of great true crime podcasts and sophisticated political conversations like, say, you might hear on the Gabfest. But it's hard to find great kids' audio, audio that's inspiring and interesting and educational and fun. And that's where Pinna comes in. Panoply, our parent here, has created Pinna, which is a safe, ad-free, guilt-free audio entertainment app just for kids. It has hours of original stories, children's podcasts, all you can listen, audiobooks, and they're all gathered in an easy-to-use app. Audio, I speak from real experience here, audio is great for kids. It gets them away from staring at their screens and it engages their imaginations. It's perfect for car time, for bath time, group time, bedtime, any time. And Pinna has programs for kids aged 4 to 12. And parents are going to enjoy it too. Like there's this great show called Molly and the Sugar Monster on Pinna. The Sugar Monster has a simple mission in life, which is never to let kids eat healthy food. And young Molly and her friends also have a mission, which is never let the Sugar Monster do his job. That's just one show you're going to love. So you should check out Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm slash listen for your free trial today. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Jocelyn will do her best to cut out my ignorance and stupidity. No, no, she will leave not. It, leave it in there. Leave it. <laughs> leave all the ignorance and stupidity in there, Jocelyn. <laughs> Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should follow us on Facebook. 
facebook.com slash gabfest uh there are lots of interesting discussions comments uh places to make fun of me to deride me sociologists should write in on that page and talk about all the great sociological experiments that have changed the world and um should continue to pile on to my stupidity for emily bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.